All right, welcome everybody to our latest Between the Races podcast on the MX Vice Network. Thank you everyone for listening and supporting the site. We really appreciate it. We'd first like to thank our sponsors in Fly Racing, Monster Energy, Fox, Parts Europe, Scott, Bell Helmets, Acherbys, AS3 Performance, Kawasaki UK, KTM UK, and of course, even Strokes for all their incredible support, as without them, none of this would be possible. All right, for this episode, we have another Aussie motocross focus show, but it's a little bit different as I'm joined by special guest and former racer and now trainer in Nathan Crawford, who runs Double Zero Elite Rider Training. How's life? And thanks for joining us in the busy schedule, mate. I know you're pretty flat out preparing for the Aussie Supercross series. Yeah, thanks very much for bringing us on. Um, yeah, we're at the moment we've been working on tracks and then we just had a week off and we start this week with uh, a new program for Supercross and looking forward to getting to the track tomorrow and getting everyone sorted. Yeah, mate, it's really cool to have you on. What you're doing up there is really impressive. Had so many good things about it. But I guess before we get stuck into it, just firstly, tell us about yourself and your career and I guess how you got into doing what you do now and just your love and the passion for the sport. Where did that come from? Uh, it actually got started from my dad. He got me into racing in like 1991. Um, and then I raced, you know, as much as we could afford to back then until um, I turned pro in 99. Uh, then I raced from 99 to 2009. Um yeah, some stuff here in New Zealand, uh, a little bit in America, AMA Supercross as well. Uh, a few injuries got, uh, you know, put the stops on a lot of stuff. Um, and then I went to work at McLeod Accessories for a bit. They put me on as a brand manager there. So I got to learn a lot of the industry ins and outs and uh, product stuff there. And then went from there across to um, Husqvarna, Australia. and was a brand manager there for a few years. Um, and then just before COVID hit, I decided to go back training full time. And, um, yeah, a month after I uh, went back, quit my full-time job with three kids and a mortgage and stuff, then COVID hit and uh, we just battled our way through it and then come out the other side with some good help. And, yeah, now we run a full-time program for basically professional guys and then we have an amateur program that the pro riders run for me as well. Oh, that's pretty cool, mate. Just before we get on to your riders, how tough was that sort of decision? You might have been questioning it just when, the, obviously, it's out of your control, the COVID thing, but there must have been a few sort of tough conversations with the family there when that COVID outbreak happened. Yeah, well, obviously, no one's seen it coming, so it, um, it put a lot of stress on, but I was lucky, you know, from my riding career up here, we had some hidden tracks and stuff where um, people were happy for me to go and use them, um, you know, with one or two kids just to keep the income rolling in every week and stuff like that so we're pretty lucky in queensland i guess if we're in new south wales and victoria mm. it was a little worse than that and you know i know a lot of the boys down there got you know stuck at home and with no income so we're pretty lucky to be in queensland i guess yeah mate awesome to hear that because yeah it was certainly a tough time for a lot of people and so yeah just tell us about the stable of riders you've got a really cool group of guys a nice blend of youth and experience Obviously, you're happy with the season so far of those dudes, but under your awning, you've got Nathan Crawford, Aaron Tanty, Ryan Alexanderson, Barham, Atkinson, Kukas, Dunlop, and obviously some younger guys as well, like Kai Woods, Drew, Ryan King. And there's been some pretty exciting news. You've obviously got the likes of Caden Minier and Regan Duffy too, exceptional talents in Australian motocross. So obviously, there's a lot of appeal, mate. The word's spreading about what a great job you're doing with the program. And so, yeah, just tell us all about it and how those riders are going and how cool is it to work with these guys that trust and believe in the program you're running. Yeah, so I guess the biggest thing was um, Caleb Burham was actually the first one to come on board. I was looking for a coach to help me with the amateurs. And I said to him, you know, if I help you through the Supercross season, are you happy to come on board next year? And and train with me and um, and help with the amateur program. He said, yeah, let's have a crack. And so we, we lifted his performance quite well. And then um, Tanny and NATO were practicing at KJ's house while I was training him. So then they started getting a little bit involved. And then uh, Tanny then 
uh, was changing from gas gas to CDR. So I helped in that line and, and got him up to go there. And um, he then developed as a rider from there and then won the championship. So that gained a lot of attention, um, you know, because he was sort of the second tier guy that year um, and he was able to secure the championship. So it was a pretty big feat. And um, from that, you know, NATO and all those boys were chasing him as well. And then the younger crew, um, we tried to drag them in and teach them because of the work ethic of, you know, Caleb, NATO and Tanny, those three guys, you know, uh, focus is unbelievable. You know, they don't, they don't get distracted by a lot of stuff. You know, they definitely put their racing first in front of pretty much everything. Sometimes their wives and girlfriends don't appreciate it, but <laughs> um, the focus is definitely not a struggle for them. Um, and so those guys help with the motivation of the younger crew, like um, Ryan and Kobe and all those guys that come along and, and jump in. They sort of see the motivation and get led along by those guys as well. Yeah, pretty cool. Must be satisfying seeing all that sort of hard work pay off for those guys and yourself because, yeah, it's definitely great inspiration to those younger kids, which you have plenty of. So I guess you feel a lot of satisfaction for it. And, you know, they definitely in interviews they do, they're very grateful for all you do. And some of the guys I've spoken to have really mentioned what an integral part you've been. So it must be pretty cool to, I guess, this time of year, especially with the motocross season just finishing, I guess, pretty cool to reflect and look back on that, mate. Yeah, mate, the achievements that these guys are getting, are, are, you know, top shelf and you know, th- there's a lot of stuff that goes in behind the scenes, you know, like people don't understand the work that's put in by them and by the people supporting them. You know, it, it's a full-time system. It doesn't, you know, your phone's 24-7. You know, it's always on whether there's a problem. You know, we have a really good relationship with Fighting Fit Physio. So, you know, we ring Dean if anyone crashes during the day and they're straight in the physio that night and getting fixed and back on the track the next day sort of thing. So, you know, we put a lot of work into making sure our systems are in place so that um, we can deal with anything that comes up. Yeah, it's pretty cool, mate. And that's cool, that partnership you have with Fighting Fit Physio. I'll go into a bit of detail about how that started. And it's kind of cool to have like an all-in program, all-encompassing a lot of aspects because everything needs to be in order for these guys to be at their best, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. We we basically come about with Dean from Fighting Fit was that um, I f- sort of discovered with Ryan Alexanderson, to be honest, that um, you, know, you couldn't be their motocross trainer, their, you know, person that took him to the track you couldn't be the guy that tried to motivate him in the gym you had to separate those things and um dean was local to us on the gold coast and has a very good background in motocross himself you know he rides and stuff like that so he was quite interested to help us so we then developed a program for school camps so we were doing five-day camps and part of that was going down to dean and getting fitness tested and stuff like that so then we developed a program from there and then um, after that, it was about up 12 months after that, we bring Tanny in and NATO and KJ and all that into the pro program. And then it's just built from there to, you know, make sure that we've got an in-house, you know, trainer and Dean or one of his staff try and turn up at all the rounds of the nationals now. So it's building for them. Um, you know, some top quality road races going there as well now since they've seen our program working out of there. Um, so Mike Jones trains out of there now as well. Um, and then our amateur crew basically have programs. So they're doing now external programs um, for guys that can't travel to the Gold Coast so we can keep some of our guys' fitness level where it needs to be um, because I don't think people really understand that, you know, you can get massive gains on the bike, but you can't sustain them if you don't have the strength and, you know, cardio to make that match. Yeah, it's so important on and off the bike, mate. looks like you've got all bases covered, that's for sure. And I guess it covers a lot of things like nutrition and diet and hydration and getting enough sleep, things like that. It's so important as well. All these things, are they all intertwine and they all sort of 
make the best athlete possible because you even hear the boss at some of the GP rounds and the junior kids, the diets aren't what they should be and just everywhere in any sport, people just need to get on top of things like that. So I guess that's something else that gets taught as well and they need to sort of just really be so disciplined in everything they do, don't they, to, to reach the performance level they desire, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And there's actually a company that work with Fighting Fit with the dietitians and stuff and they can actually blend your meal for what you want to do so you can have custom meals pre-done. Um, so some of the boys utilize that. Some of the boys are sponsored by U Foods, um, you know, things like that. So that, you know, at the track, their hydration and nutrition is just as good as if they're at home. Yeah, that's really cool, mate. And just how do you go about organizing tracks? Obviously, you'd be flat out getting everything in a row so these guys can turn up and do their thing. But you obviously have some great partners and sponsors that help you out and make everything happen. And I guess just the benefits of having so many resources around you and I guess the hard work as well, scheduling it all. But you're just trying to make, a, I guess, a streamlined program so there's not too much time wasted traveling and downtime because, you know, every day is important, isn't it, to make gains and learn and improve, isn't it? Yeah, we're really lucky up here. We have quite a few ride parks and clubs that are quite willing to work with us and, and understand what sort of business model we're running um, because it's not the standard business model of, you know, afternoon coaching a lot of the time and amateurs. Um, so, yeah, once they started understanding that, you know, Willowbank um, MX, they put on a good show for us and what used to do Willowbank Wednesdays to try and help us out. Um, you know, QMP, um, they are also quite helpful. Then basically the Coolum Club and Matt and that that, president there he's gone above and beyond to make sure that we could get onto Coolum when we could the rain was the thing mainly stopping us there um and then we have some private tracks that guys like um jaffa from tattoo racing he puts in the hard yards you know he goes out and waters the track and preps it the day before just because he enjoys the boys training there and and likes to watch them the next day dragging bars through ruts and stuff like that so you know it definitely helps have an enthusiast like that behind what we're trying to do yeah, that's pretty cool, mate. And what are some of the challenges you've found, obviously, with the program? There's probably got some guys working full-time and managing things as well, and you have some guys you help remotely. So just for your perspective, what are a lot of the key challenges you face? <laughs> like anybody, mate, it's just time juggling. So yeah. it's making sure that you're always effective. You know, like I know when we first started speaking um, about doing this podcast, you know, I was in a bobcat talking to you um, about that, and we're always sort of active. So it's you're doing more than one thing at a time. Um, the biggest one for us is is the challenge of the tracks and the travel time between the tracks. So um, we're unlucky in Southeast Queensland to not have many sand tracks. So to do that, there's a lot of prep work has to go in. You know, we have one track out near Iraq. It's a damn white place. And, you know, we spent, you know, his uncle spent the whole day before the day we go and ride there in the water truck for us, you know, and, you know, give him a cart and a gold and he's happy as and sign a few posters for his son. But, you know, it, it's just such a demanding sport on the bike, off the bike, and then being planned and organized enough to be able to take a crew there. Um, yeah. We guess with eight or 10 riders now um, in our pro crew, we kind of struggle to uh, a lot of private facilities in noise. Yeah. So it's a problem. So we have to sort of split things up and do different things. But Caleb Burham, I guess, helps me with that as well. You know, when I'm not there for something, he can always take over and, and run things so that we can get two tracks running some days and things like that. So we might be split as a group but running the same program. Yeah. So to, um, to try and juggle it all. But yeah, and my wife helps with admin quite a bit. So that, that helps quite a lot. She started doing that this year. So um, before that, it was sort of yeah pretty hectic trying to do all the permits and stuff like that as well. Oh, mate, there's so many moving parts and so much to consider. Just to touch on tracks closing down, it was pretty sad to see Coolum go 
a few weeks ago, mate. Just your thoughts on that. Obviously, another training place you can't go to now as well, but it was a great race to finish the season, mate. So just your take on it. Yeah, it's it's super unfortunate. You know, um, Coulomb's one of the only sand tracks in Southeast Queensland. So not only that disappearing, you know, the the work that goes in behind the scenes by the club and and Matt Holiday is one of the you know driving forces there, and you know he puts in a lot of his own time and you know passion. Um, and they get to the point where you know now they're putting in all, or put in all this work to now just have the council say you're done. Yep. You know, and they don't they don't find a new facility for you. They don't try and find land for you. They don't help you with anything else. Um, you know, I, I think the Coulomb community is um, going to find it a bit different. You know, as much as they like to whinge about the noise, the money that's generated by the time the race is coming, you know, we have Queensland titles there, Sunshine's Day Series there. You're talking, you're bringing thousands of people to the area, spending money on fuel, food, accommodation, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, it's, you know, probably the same sort of trade as a school holiday, you know, and, you know, they're going to miss those five or six times a year that that happens. So I think the community will will struggle a little bit in that return. You know, they, they don't understand it until it's gone. Yeah, it's sad because obviously you hear a lot of things in Europe, obviously the, the dense population and the sprawl of it. Yeah, a lot of tracks facing similar issues. And it is sad because, you know, the sport where you want to try and get as many eyes on it as possible because it is such an amazing sport. And being in a place like that that's so close to so many people, over the years, it would have got, you know, thousands of kids into motocross because a lot of kids that live in the city aren't really exposed to it and they don't know how awesome it is. So it'll be definitely a bit of a hit for the local area, mate. So, yeah, well said and good to get your thoughts on it. But, yeah, back to the training, I guess. What advice do you have for the kids that you bring on? Obviously, a lot of the work is them. You know, they've got to want to do it. They've got to put the work in. They've got to commit to it like we were talking before we started because you can't be there every second to guide them. They have to really have that desire from within, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Um you know, it's really easy to become, as a trainer, more like their dad or mother that's tried to help them along the way. You know, you can turn into the, the nagging parent, I guess, for lack of better words. So you just become the nagging trainer. So, you know, the guys that are committed, you know, you don't have to ring them every morning to get them out of bed. They're already up, you know. And uh, that's, I guess, with our crew that we have, those older guys like Tanny and Nato and Caleb, that they show that determination. So it's probably easier to see that, you know, when they would go practicing during the week and some of the younger guys might hang on the back of them for a lap or two and then fade off. And then, you know, they talk afterwards, oh, you know, I had you, I had you for a couple laps, you know, I had your pace for a couple laps. And the, the boys would just start laughing at them, you know, and say, yeah, you did, but paces aren't a couple of laps. You know, and then that motivates them to go home and go to bed earlier and get off their phones more, you know. That's probably the biggest downfall with today's society of youth is that, the phone time is ridiculous. Like we quite often have, <laughs> we call it a discussion um, at the start of training and, and when there's been disappointment, like uh, after QMP, my crew, um, when we went to train, you know, they underperformed at QMP um, for a lot of them. So we had a meeting Tuesday morning um, and the first thing was pull your phone out. Now you can't tell me you're committed if there's more screen time there than the hours you put into training every week. Yep. So, you know, that, that, you know, takes a lot of them to not get that, oh, but I was just relaxing and, you know, I was on Facebook for an hour and a half every day or Insta or whatever it might be, TikTok, I guess is a big one now, but, you know, they're burning three or four hours a day on those things and they think it doesn't mean anything. Um, once they realize that it actually just takes away your focus and, and adds to your brain strain, um, your body's actually not recovering when you're doing that as much as they think it is. You're not getting it to relax. So commitment to being disciplined in all aspects. And the saying we always have is that if you want to be normal, 
then choose a normal thing to do. So go to work, do your things. If you want to be elite at what you do, you have to make sacrifices and those become about social commitments, you know, screen time, you mean all that sort of stuff, dietary requirements. So if you're missing one of those pieces, um, you know, you miss the performance on race day. So the commitment is number one, you got to be self-motivated, you know, you got to get the right people behind you. And then once you have that, it's about how much drive you've got, you know, um, my guys know that if there's a problem or there's something going on that they, you know, even some of them just overthink. So, you know, they'll ring me at eight o'clock at night, you know, because they're just overthinking stuff. You know, and we calm them down and get them sorted and that's just part of being their trainer, you know, but at that level, you've got to make sure that you're mentally, you know, stimulated and you're mentally prepared. Then you've got to have your hydration and all that. And again, it's when you pick something up or when you decide to roll over and hit your snooze, you know, you've made that choice. So you need to live with it and then adjust. And that's probably the biggest thing. A lot of them don't look at what the mistakes are. You know, yeah, that's so. pretty cool, mate. The accountability and I guess being responsible for your actions and your decisions is definitely a good thing to instill into anyone, not just athletes. So, And it must be cool for those younger guys having those, like you said, yourself and those elite guys like Crawford and Tanny setting the standard kind of no bullshit policy and sort of do you have any issues with the competition on the track obviously you hear a lot of stuff in america and various places about those facilities how you know it's almost breeding that sort of aggression who's the top dog i guess it's a good thing to elevate the level obviously that kind of thing's not for everyone but everyone pushing each other on i guess is only a good thing in terms of elevating your performance isn't it exactly and you know i try and explain to my guys you know you can do the same training but you know, on race day when the gate drops, you know, you could be in 20th and he could be in third or whatever it might be. And, you know, what you did during the week didn't influence that, that gate drop. It's what you did. Do you mean? So you got to be accountable for your actions. You know, that's what a lot of people, I think, get beat up in their ego is that they go to the track and they go, you know, I was the same speed as this guy during the week. Yeah, but you gated in eighth and he hole-shotted. You know, you weren't going three seconds lap faster than you'd be able to run him down. So... You know, that's your accountability on the gate drop or being prepared the right ways for those. You know, and, and that's, you know, training together. The intensity is so high. You know, it's only really a couple of the younger kids that worry about that. Most of our crew know, okay, yeah, I'm second off today. I'm three off tomorrow or it's whatever. You know, after warm-up, some of them come in from warm-up and, you know, they go and sit by themselves, you know, and everyone knows or just leave, leave them be. They want to think about what they're doing better and, stuff like that, and then they come back out and they're firing. They've found three seconds a lap just in mentally preparing themselves better when they've got there, you know. Um, one of the big things we changed was a um, a work-on-your-bike policy. So um, we found that a lot of them were coming to the track because they're riding back-to-back and, you know, day on end, and they got gym in between and cycling and, you know, all sorts of recovery stuff. They were riding, washing their bike, next morning turning up, working on their bike before we start warm-up. So we cancelled that policy out. So you can't do bike work on the morning of. You must do it the day before. Um, and we found that just in that little bit of structure, um, it stopped them from being so flustered in the morning. So their warm-ups became better and things like that, you know, because on race day, they don't have that. They have, most of them have mechanics. Yep. So, you know, you've got to make sure that you're simulating what you're doing as well. Yeah, that's pretty so, cool. I definitely appreciate that sort of guidance too because, yeah, organisation and time management is what you do to make it happen for them. So, you know, you probably expect the least they can sort of give in return to maximise their training days. And like you said, getting gate drops and stuff, you can't replicate that every weekend. So I guess having a program like yours is kind of the next best thing where they're always going through different, you know, stages of adversity if they're not fast enough, if they're, you know, not feeling well enough. 
fighting through various things and just trying to compete every day and show up. It certainly builds a pretty strong individual, doesn't it? It does. And the other thing is, too, that that's where fighting fit comes into play as well. So we got them at the gym. They're competing against each other at the gym. You know yeah. what I mean? So um, there's a lot of data now that comes out from, you know, new stuff about that. You know, they can, they can map the power. So when someone's doing, say, a squat jump, they can map the power and it's on an iPad and it charts it for you. So the next person jumps in and they've got a, a gauge of, you know, where they want to do. So like uh, Tanny has really strong legs. So the other boys are always chasing that, you know, um, then upper body NATO might have something better than him. You know? And then um, one of the other exercises, you know, Ryan or that might be better than the other boys. So there's always a, a gauge there as well, like accountability. So because that fighting fit, um, Renee or Dean is always supervising the program. So they're never sort of at the gym without someone watching what's going on. Yeah, it must be good for the guys to have putting all that work in to have sort of a see a tangible, you know, evidence of their improvement and to measure how far they've come and to look back and know there's always more room for growth. And I just wanted to quickly ask you about that Tanty issue. Obviously, when he got caught up in that issue with the lappers, when he'd done all the hard work to put himself in an excellent position, I guess that must be a real knock after all the stuff that gets done in preparation and, you know, for the race weekends and something like that to happen. It must be a real heartbreaker. Yeah, it was actually right in front of us. So where I'd set up for the day, it was the corner right before the finish line. And we were there with our quick shades. And Tony had three or four quick shades full of family right there as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we know it wasn't intentional, but I, I guess, you know, when the blue flag waves two or three positions before that, um, you know, you expect that they understand someone's coming. And I, I guess, you know, for, for some of the people, and I know that some of the privateers work and parents still help fund it and stuff like that, but someone like Tanny, it's his full-time job. So... You know, people don't understand how much that actually cost him on the day and cost him throughout the championship. So, you know, he essentially lost the day. You know, he, he probably would have got second or third on the podium for the day. So, you know, that's a range of money. And then it cost him for third in the championship as well because he didn't perform very well at Coolum. Um, So that's another bonus that he's lost out on there as well, you know, which is not 100% fault on the lapper, but, you know, it, it, there's got to be some accountability for it. And, you know, I think MA have to do something about that as well. Like, you know, there has to be some sort of better regulator of what's going on. And, you know, they're, they're lapping guys, you know, eight minutes into the 25-minute the moto. Mm. You know, and there wasn't like a first-turn pile-up or, you know, stuff like that where sometimes that occurs. But if you're getting lapped that fast into the race, then, you know, MA need to look at it and go, oh, we better off only having, you know, 30 gates available, you know, and, and, and having 30, you know, quality people that aren't getting lapped that early and have a bit more experience, you know, and, maybe put in like, you know, they have a MX3 class in the Prime X, but there's no development class at those races for guys that want to become professionals. So mm. you might not be, you might be 19 years old and, and you know, you started late in the sport and, you know, you're an A-grade local club guy. Well, you may not want to sit on the gate with the other boys that do it for a living, but you still want to race in that environment, you know? So I think that would be a better idea, you know, having a development class at those Prime X races. So that they could have those sorts of things, you know, so where it might be open to, you know, 250 and 450 guys, but, you know, you have to be, you know, you know, you're not quite ready to be there, but you're ready to ride those tracks. Yeah. You know, That's pretty cool. Obviously, a, maybe shorter motos, that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 It might be a, a 20 minute moto. You might get two motos for the day. Um, you know, they even, when they do the double headers, they might only actually ride on Saturday. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that, you know, just, but it gets, you know, more people to that environment teaches them about it because what a lot of people don't understand is the pressure that goes on, you know, the time schedule, you have to be there on time. You have to, you mean, be there the day before the race for riders briefing. You know? So there's a lot of stuff that goes into it and learning it 
you know, while you're stressing about being on the gate with professional riders, you know, if they had some sort of lead in, you know, it would be a much better idea. Yeah, well said, mate. I hope someone consults you about some of these ideas just to streamline them and, and make it better for everyone. That's the aim of the, the whole thing. So it's an improvement across the board. But just your opinion on the state of the sport in Australia, obviously things are pretty good. The the TV package is really well run. It's on a pay TV and, and obviously free-to-air TV. So it's lots of access, lots of eyeballs, have the ability to watch it. I guess some of the downsides, I guess, with the motocross schedule is the, the gap in the schedule, like that seven-weeker one we had before the last couple. But, yeah, it's good the MX1, MX2, MX3 classes are really stacked, so much talent coming through them. But, yeah, just you're happy with how it's all going and just, I guess, the things you like and the things that maybe could work on a bit of improvement, even though it's obviously easier said than done and they do a good job with the logistics and the resources they have, don't they? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a step forward over the last couple of years, the TV package. You know, I guess allows um, a wider audience, and and that's always good. Um, the downside of that is I, I don't see that um, a lot of the people have the resources to chase outside sponsorship. So I think the downside of our sport is that people are always chasing sponsorship from the industry, and the industry is not big enough to fuel that. So the cost of running, you know, most other companies, you know, if you look at anything else for go karts or you know development series for those sorts of things, they're always got. Um, you know, a, a corporation behind them. You mean, no matter how big the corporate, it might be a smaller corporation, but they're, you know, they're insurance or they're, you know, something like that to try and generate some income. You know, I think that's what MA need to start looking at is how do they um, promote the series to more corporations to get better advertising and that advertising money might be used for free entries for privateers or, you know, to re- reduce the cost, up the prize money, whatever it might be to try and do that. And I think that that would work much better now that they've got that TV coverage stuff. You know, it, it's presentable. The advertising's really well, you know, the signs around the track are really well done. You know, all that sort of stuff works quite well for them now. Um, so I think the next phase of that is, you know, trying to get better marketing behind it. So, but the series is run, the classes are pretty full. Um, you know, MX3 definitely, you know, they, they're starting out with, you know, 60 and 70 riders and having to cut down to 40. Um, so that that's definitely working well. Um, the depth within the other classes is getting better. You know, there was quite a while there, there's sort of top five guys in a massive hole and then sort of, you know, guys racing from fifth to 15th. Now that's sort of stabilising and, and the speeds coming up for that, those top sort of 15, 20 in each class are, are quite competitive. Um, but overall for the series, I think, you know, they need to look at their structure just in terms of dates, um, you know, what they're targeting towards because, you know, race teams have budgets, financial years, you know what I mean? So the financial year falls in between that stuff where a lot of people don't understand that. Um, for a race team, you know, they're using budgets from two different years. And like COVID where sales went up, you know, their budgets may have increased, but now sales are declining again. Their budget for the end of the year might be a little bit smaller than how they started the year. So I think MA need to look at maybe running a series where they do, you know, two rounds back to back. So they might go to New South Wales for two weekends in a row then have a three-week break, then go to Victoria for two weekends in a row, have a three-week break. That would allow the privateers to work those three weeks, travel for two, yep. you know, come back, work again, and those three weeks in between, you'd, you'd let them host the state races. So you still get the race practice, but you don't have the travel involved. And I think yeah. if they did that, if they did that from sort of January to July or something like that, then the break in between Supercross and Motocross and then run Supercross from September to to end of October and then give everyone November off, December off, start again in January sort of thing. So 
because they keep stretching the years longer with, you know, supercross finishes, maybe going to have three weeks off and then back into it, you know, where in a lot of other instances, the riders need a bit more time to heal. That's the other thing that having a schedule where it went two weekends in a row and then three weeks off, the guys would have time if they got a niggling injury round one and they rode through it in round two, they've now got three weeks off to round three, they're healed. Yeah, it's so, a pretty cool point, mate. I guess, yeah, condensing the season is probably a, a wise idea, like you said there, mate, just because you don't really have many, you know, championship level series with like two month breaks. It's something that must be hard for your riders to deal with and a bit frustrating for the teams. But I guess, and your thoughts on, I guess, the track prep as well this year, mate, there's been a few choice words about it. Obviously, some of them out of the control with the weather, but you obviously had App and the 40 degree mudder and, you know, Wodonga, no one could do anything about and then you obviously had Maitland was always, that's a pretty hard, sketchy place. And then Gilman, something a bit different. And then it, obviously the riders seemed a lot happy with the Toowoomba QMP and Coolum one. So your thoughts on that? Areas for improvement or were you sort of content with it in the grand scheme of things? Oh, I think it's like anything. When you've got volunteers where clubs trying to do their best, um, you know, they're trying to do something on a stage that they've maybe not delivered on as much as, you know, just the club day and things like that. Um, I think, you know, the, the talk at the moment is to have one track crew going around and prepping the facility before beforehand um, and getting it up to scratch. But, you know, I know the MA officials have had some stuff to say at some of the other rounds and even at the Queensland round. So like at Woomba, for instance, they overrode the, uh, you know, decision of the club and wouldn't let the club water in a few sections and rip it in deeper in a few sections. So the track was dusty for the second motor, you know, and the, and the club knows that ground the best. You know, the, the people there worked at the red soil all the time. So I think that limited a few things in racing. I understood what the MA officials were trying to do, but at some instance, they've got to have more like a professional that knows, not just a guy that drives a dozer, but someone that knows soils and moisture levels and chemicals that can be added to the soil to hold the moisture, um, things like that, you know, might might have a, you know, say a track director, you know, someone that goes to the area a week in advance and spends time with the club members and has the final say on how the track prep is done. So if that track falls apart or has an issue or whatever, that track director then says, no, no, we need the Bobcats out there. We need a dozer out there. We're fixing this. We're doing that. And that way they'd have some consistency in it rather than it being up to an MA official that arrives, you know, a couple of days before and, and stuff like that. You know, they need to have a think about that. Yeah, that's pretty cool, mate. It's a specialised thing and the knowledge that can be applied, I guess, in conjunction with the people that run the facilities could, yeah, make for better tracks in the future. I like that thought, mate. And just on the topic of the schedule, would you think that there's there needs to be more motocross rounds, more supercross rounds? Obviously, only supercross only being three rounds, I'm sure they'll be looking to add a few more. But are you sort of happy with the amount of races or do you think we need just a few more to sort of fill out the calendar and, I guess, keep the fans a bit more engaged and you know, a bit more regular racing, I guess, with the gap being so big, but because everything sort of carries with momentum, isn't it? People follow the storylines and those big gaps can sort of halt those pretty severely, can't they? Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, 20 races a year nationally would be pretty good. So whether that's, you know, 10 motocross, 10 supercross, 12 motocross, you know, six supercross, I think they could also look at, you know, affordability um, for the motocross series could be running double rounds at a few areas. So, you know, Saturday is a is a round in itself and Sunday is a round within itself. Um, and then that tests the durability of the rider as well. You know, you probably don't want to do it on the roughest sand track in WA. But, you know, say, for, for instance, say Maitland or somewhere like that, they could run where they get the crowds as well. They could run a double header each time. And that way you don't have to go to, you know, 
12 venues, but you might be able to get 12 rounds in mm. with, say, eight eight venues. So the cost doesn't really rise that high for the teams or the privateers to, to run those extra rounds. Yep. But you obviously have the TV broadcast, you have the extra championship points, you know, those sorts of things. And then Supercross, you know, there's a lot of things going on. And, um, you know, I had a mate that was promoting uh, Scott Bannon, Supercross in Queensland here for a few years there. Um, you know, I understand the ins and outs of it from having conversations with him. It, it's not easy when you're hiring venues and, you know, pulling in grandstands and, you know, doing those sorts of things because the weather can grab you every time. Um, but the Supercross series, you know, with the talent that we have here is, I guess, you know, not long enough. You know, it, it needs to be a, you know, six round series over eight weeks or, or something like that. Um, and again, you know, it might be the fact that you can do it a little closer together in terms of, you know, one week they might be able to run Newcastle and then the next week they might be able to run Coffs Harbour, you know. Yeah. Um, I think going to those sort of smaller venues um, and then having some bigger venues is, is the way to go. Just going to big venues and think you're going to fill them every time and the costs through the roof. But, you know, I think if they did like a rural race, say even, you know, Dubbo and then across to, to Newcastle, they would get the crowd at Dubbo at the showgrounds and then move across to Newcastle the next week and then have a week break and then, you know, go to Victoria and do the same thing. You know, maybe run at Geelong and then run, you know, or run at Ballarat, you mean know, something like that, and then run a few hours further down for, for Marvel. Well, I like you know, that they, idea, mate, sort of mixing the regional and the major centres and then I guess you're spreading the sport and spreading the word a lot. And there's certainly a lot of things to be discussed about that because you can see what can be done. I guess you saw the MXGP during Corona time. They were sort of doing back-to-back events within, you know, a few days of each other. And, you know, you can even run things like, I guess, the series like the ADAC does where they have an actual points-paying moto on the Saturday, which is good for the fans, and then two motos on the Sunday as well. So there's all these various options to get, I guess, more points-scoring races in, serious races in, more gate drops. So it's pretty cool, mate. But I also wanted to ask you, how closely do you sort of work with the teams on their riders? Because obviously you've got factory guys, a lot of them, and I guess they want to sort of get all the data and see how their guys are going because they want to keep track of their investments, don't they? Yeah, yeah, I think that's um, probably one of the biggest things that's growing at the moment is the relationship between trainers and team managers and stuff is that, you know, for instance, a racer, you know, might only get seen by the team. They do a couple of days of testing, you know, before pre-season where their trainers see them three, four days a week. Yep. I mean, so you know, we're watching the bikes and stuff like that. And, you know, we might not have the inside knowledge of suspension and stuff like that, but you can definitely tell, you know, when you've got 10 bikes going past you, you can tell what one's handling the best through that section, you know, and I guess the hardest thing is that, um, you know, some of the team managers probably don't think that your knowledge is as good as what theirs is, you know, but, um, you know, times have changed and there's so much more information out there. You know, it doesn't have to be learned from that. You can learn from outside sources now. Um, you know, you can learn stuff from, you know, video replays, you know, you can watch back your races. That's a lot of things we do after a national is we'll watch them back from the TV coverage is sometimes better than the view at the track. So, you know, you can watch back and watch through areas like that, but, you know, I don't know how many of them have got their suspension technicians sitting down on Monday morning, watching the replay going, is this rider error or is this, could we get our bike handling better? You know, yeah, so I think cool. there's a, that's a it's a big role to play there is is development but um you know i have a partnership with the kdm group um they from my relationship with husbana when i was a you know brand manager there um they sort of have a bit more contact with those guys um so with nato and nato's mechanic jonesy and kyle from kdm group I have a little bit better contact relationship there um so when we're finding things out or you know adjusting things or testing schedules and stuff like that we're trying to encourage them to come to us rather than the rider go to them 
where we know what the bike's doing in certain areas on different tracks and we can fix that problem there, you know. So um, it's definitely a growing thing. I think over the next sort of two to three years, that would change quite a lot. Um, you know, I, you know, diff- different personalities don't always mix as well. So professionalism sort of comes on board. So um, it, it's a different thing to mix with. You know, I'm not sure I was the easiest person to deal with when I raced either. So, you know, I might have stepped on some toes and stuff like that when I was doing it professionally. So when they come and see you as a trainer, you know, they might have a preconceived, you know, opinion. Um, But it's very different now. We work as a different structure and, you know, we're not in that developed race environment where you're under high pressure. Yeah, it's pretty cool, mate. Obviously, the parameters shift and, you know, you shift as well with what you're doing. So it's pretty cool, mate. And it's cool to hear all those fine margins that, you know, they all combine and they make, you know, your athletes better, make you better as a trainer. I wanted to ask, I guess, are you always sort of looking at other training facilities and, you know, overseas in Australia? Do you share ideas? Are you all trying to sort of elevate the the training game? I guess it's pretty cool. You see stuff like the Baker's Factory in America, what Star Racing's doing, MTF. And even in Australia, you've got the Beaton's Pro Formula and Ford Dale, that set up as well. So I guess it's pretty cool. You see these kind of things developing and I guess it's kind of a necessary thing in the sport where you just get so much track time against sometimes your competition, your teammates other riders and other classes it just sort of is a streamlined process and even with like mxgp with kenny van duren with the cool program he does a lot with the yamaha guys so yeah just your thoughts on that and sort of i guess you're always searching to be better aren't you yeah it's, it's intellectual data you know you're, you're trying to find it and you're looking for where your stuff falls down and where other people's might be having success and things like that we try not to look at too much at other people's programs here within australia because you know they see it as competition and that but so we try and stick to what we're doing but we look at you know rider development and things like that through different sources. I was lucky enough last year, um, I trained a young kid from um, North Queensland, Heath Fisher, um, and, you know, his dad took me over to Loretta's. You know, so we, we did a couple of weeks over there and looked at the Loretta's scale and talked to some trainers over there and got to meet people like Ezra Lask and, you know, things like that. And that, that was really cool in terms of that sort of thing. You got to see a different scale of stuff. We did a little bit at MTF. We did a little bit at GPF, um, just seeing different structures like that in there the way they run things and and volume, I guess, of what they're doing. So I guess in Australia versus America, the ride time, they like to ride a lot more in America, um, which, you know, increase a lot of things, not only risk of, of, of falls but an injury, but, you know, bike costing. Yeah. You know, they, they, they tend to have the, you know, there's no factor into, you know, you need to do 12 hours on your hour meet or a week over there. And there's no factor into that. That means your bike's being rebuilt every two weeks, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, two and a half, three grand to get a four stroke rebuilt, you know, after 25 hours. So, yeah. you know, there, there, there's a massive cost involved in that stuff. So, you know, we look into those sorts of things and look at quantity versus quality, I guess is the biggest thing. But again, we look at different things like the luxury of stuff where working with Dean at Fighting Fit, I'll find a problem like last year, it was that we're finding that the riders were packing so like a shock, but with their legs, as they're going through the whoops, they're actually getting lower on the back of the bike. So they're squatting and not returning to full stretch. Yeah. So we worked on that in the gym to fix that on the bike. Yeah. You know, So I think we look at things a little bit different to, to what my, others might do, you know. Pretty analytical, mate. It's pretty cool to see that. That's sort of everything from your body position on the bike and the bike all gets looked at. And I guess you'd be pretty happy with how you compared you know, against other training programs, just being over there, it looks like you're running a pretty good ship, mate. So would have probably reinforced the ideas that what you're doing is correct and is working. Yeah, yeah. We get obviously we got some data from over there. We got some things to test back here. 
um, we're also, you know, accountability. So if we're going wrong, you know, I talk with my crew, um, we decide on, you know, hey, what do you think? What are your thoughts on this? You know, we have, I guess, brainstorming meetings with the the top guys that train for me as well. Because um, Caleb, Aaron, and NATO, they they train my amateur crew. So you know, we're always having discussions. We've found that when they're training those amateurs, it's actually reinforcing what they need to be doing on the bike. Yeah. So it's actually helping them with their riding as well, because then they've got to demonstrate it to somebody. They've got to slow it down and still be able to demonstrate it so that the kid can see it you know, explain the thought processes that go behind it. So, you know, we've found that that's quite a good asset to our riders as well. So we're bringing in other ones like, um, you know, Zane Dunlop, who's starting training with us as well. Um, so he's going to start running some local club coaching stuff and things like that. So we're building that background and knowledge and then we're going to start an online program at that level, the base sort of club level stuff so that the boys have another aspect of, you know, uh, marketing as well. You know, they see that their sponsors and that our sponsors are, always getting that little bit extra yeah it's cool mate obviously the fundamentals always need to be reinforced like you said and these guys you know no matter how good you are at anything you never stop learning do you mate and that's pretty exciting to hear about the online stuff you're getting into obviously i believe mitch evans aussie racer doing well in mxgp and over the last few years showing what a great talent he is i believe he's getting into doing something similar so i guess it's all good for aussie motocross having all these resources i guess as long as it's done well and in a professional and you know proven effective manner isn't it yeah, I think the the online thing's always been a hard thing. I, I don't think you'll get an on like an elite program online, but you'll get a base program that you know you can't be everywhere. So yeah. do you know what I mean? Like information is key. I, I see a lot of club coaches start you know a kid on a Pee Wee fifty, and they're saying to him, "Oh, mate, you need to ride on your toes." You know, like they they're giving these techniques that are you know, take years of development and body development as well. We sort of argue this point all the time. If you don't have the calf strength to ride on your toes, then you're just going to sink your heels, lock your ankles out, and then not have the, the actual flexibility or the, you know, in that lockout ankle position, you might as well be standing on your balls of your feet because you've taken away the flexibility of having that extra flex point. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what we want to try and do is build a base program that sort of lets people develop over a number of, you know, six-week blocks that allow them to unlock as their riding develops, they unlock the next phase. They're not worried about what's the next phase. You know, I think in our sport, a lot of people rush to, oh, I want to do what the pros are doing. Well, you can't do that because you don't have the base gym program. You don't have the cycling program. You don't have the dietary requirements to last that long in that riding position. You know, so that's what I don't think a lot of, um, you know, baseline coaches, you know, they just want to, oh, I'll teach you this, I'll teach you that. They want to try and give out all this information. And it might be not, incorrect but just for incorrect for that particular rider you know at their level so yeah, there's so many things that's... to take into consideration like physical limitations like you said mate and getting that groundwork of fitness to be able to actually achieve what you're you know trying to tell people to do there needs to be so much in the background and just progression before you get to it that's a pretty cool point mate yeah yeah people just want to get to the end result and the end result doesn't come without all the basic stuff so you know i think that's that's what we've focused on and, and we've proven that you know we might not have the guy throwing the biggest scrubs on the track, but you know it doesn't matter if he's holding the trophy at the end of the day and he didn't scrub the finish line. 
Yeah, that's it, mate. It's framework making these guys success and to have that technical base as well, which obviously breeds speed in the in the long run. But yeah, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the cool riding styles you see out there. Obviously, the Lawrence brothers make it look easy, poetry in motion. But like we were saying, there's so much work that's gone in over the years to make that happen. And then I guess contrast that with someone like Hayden Deegan, who's a real hard charger, you know, doesn't mind the back stepping out, doesn't mind being pretty loose on the bike and throwing those big whips and scrubs and stuff. So very contrasting. It works for both of them. But yeah, just your thoughts on those two. Um, obviously, the Lawrence brothers, you know, the, you know, Jet, for instance, got to learn from Hunter. The dad, Darren, did a lot of work in the background. You know, he wasn't just standing there letting them do laps. He was always getting data as well. You know, I think the biggest thing that you see with those guys is the way that they ride the bike is efficient. Yep. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of small movements coming to save energy, to keep the bike grounded, to, you know, those sorts of things where I guess Deegan's style is more hanging it out and I wouldn't say hope, but because they're riding enough that, you know, they're doing a lot of hours on hour meter a week you know, throwing scrubs like that, if they're doing that all week, is, you know, efficient to them. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I just don't think that the the long jeopardy, you know, I think the Lawrence brothers' technique will have long jeopardy. And if they need to lift a little, they're going to do it at a lower risk. So if they need to increase their speed for that day because, they, you know, they're a little bit off the pace or whatever it might be, they can do it. Um, where when you've got someone that's hanging it out, you know, every week to lift they generally, you know, going to lay on the ground instead, you know, because they've already found where the limit is. That's what they're riding at. Yeah, it's pretty cool, mate. I like to hear that. And I just wanted to also ask you, with you being set up in Queensland, it gets very hot, nice weather all year round, but especially in the summers, how do you sort of tailor your training programs to that? And also how important is that off-season training block to prepare the guys for the rest of the season. Talking to Adam Sterry about that, just obviously it's winter for them a lot of the time. And he said it's really is important to build that base and that groundwork to really excel during the season. Do you find that too? Yeah, the off-season always gives you a good opportunity to work on your weaknesses from the season before, whether that's injury that needs to be restructured in the gym with your training program, um, you know, getting your back balanced on the bike um, from those injuries. I think that's what during the season, a lot of people don't understand that you know most of the riders have something niggling them. You know, and they adjust their technique to, to counter for that, um, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. So you have to then readjust that. Um, once the injury's gone away, they've been riding with that injury for six, 12 weeks. That just becomes their new technique. So then you've got to iron those things out to get away from that because their efficiency is not there. You know, so it might be just the way they grip the handlebar. You know, they've had to bring their wrist back in so it locks in a little bit straight away instead of having your wrist out on a slight angle so you can you know, move around on the bike a little bit more. You know, um, their legs, you know, we kind of find quite often that if they've got an ankle or knee injury, you know, they're standing on the bike, the weight in their feet's not even. Then you have to readjust those things and, you know, we've got to make sure that the program's set. And then with the heat, um, you know, again, we just have protocols in place, you know, don't show up the track without a quick shade. You know, make sure that your hydration and nutrition's done. You know what I mean? Like when you're doing your training, we just work around hours and, and when you're doing your off-bike training, you know, are you doing your air conditioning? area you know stuff like that to try and stop losing the sweat and the hydration through that to make the, sure the fatigue's not too high that's pretty cool mate. a couple more before i let you go I just want to get your thought on you know privateers a lot of the guys you train with the sort of running privateer style setups i guess you must have a lot of respect for them how they manage everything working full time and just being able to dedicate so much of their spare time which is not really existent to trying to be a success in the sport and paving their way with so much to juggle on their plate i guess sort of must even motivate you training some of these guys just to see how much they put into it yeah, so for the basis of my career, I ran as a privateer because I like to run my own way. Um, so I have a lot of knowledge in that, trying to teach them, you know, how much it takes and, you know, that you don't have the luxury to go and play golf. You need to be working on your bike or at work earning the money. 
Um, so we teach them some structures and that to try and get around it because, you know, they have the fear of missing out. Um, you know, they feel as though they're putting in all this effort. They're not quite getting the same results as the top guys, but the top guy's getting to go play golf where the other guy that's a privateer is laying concrete, you know. He's bent over all day pulling back on the screed. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, a, it's a, I guess, a mental thing that you need to make sure that you're happy with what you're doing. Do you mean there's plenty of time later to be out doing those sort of less stressful things on your body? Um, so it's, uh, you know, priorities in life, I guess. It depends how driven you are. And a lot of the time <laughs> when they start getting into relationships, you find that their drive is there, but they're being taught into another, you know, buy a house, to mm-hmm. do this sort of stuff. So they, the responsibility factor comes in. So they've got to be self-driven to be able to go, hang on, well, I can do that in three years' time or, you mean, let me have a really good stab at this for the next couple of years and support what I do, and then we'll move on to that phase of life. Yeah, I guess you use someone like Tanti as a testament to that, who was doing his apprenticeship and, and racing on the side, and then he finished that. You know, he's telling when I did a podcast with him, just the sheer amount of work and then working full-time to pay for his racing, and then I guess the rewards of uh, all that hard work's being paid off emphatically with what he's doing. So I guess that's a pretty good example of someone, a reference point to use and show the younger guys that it can be possible. Yeah, that's right, and we try and teach them that, you know, being a full-time rider, you have some luxuries too. Um, you know that that you know you, you essentially could be working a little bit. You know, I try and tell my guys if you're working two and a half days a week um, and riding the rest of the time, yeah, that's a pretty good lifestyle. You know, so they need to be and sustainable. You know, like the the work keeps them grounded, and it also keeps them running on a schedule. So if you're responsible to be at work Monday morning at nine o'clock everything in your schedule around works to make sure that you're at work at nine o'clock Monday morning or six o'clock of your concreting, you know, where if they don't have that, they kind of go, Oh, you know, I'll go to gym this afternoon instead of this morning, you know, and they, they burn a day and then they miss a training session and then they get out of routine and then they turn up at the track late and then it all just starts to unravel for them. Yeah. You know, so being, being structured from, you know, when you wake up to when you go to sleep, having all those times done makes the big difference. And then having good examples like Tanny and the boys, um, showing that that's what they've done, you know. They they kind of – and they're, they're happy to share that advice too. That's probably one of the biggest things that, you know, they don't say, oh, I got there because I did this, you know. They say, hey, I'm here now, but so I'm trying to enjoy that from the hard work we've done over the last five, six years to get to that point. Yep. But they don't tell everyone it's a dream, you know. Like we – quite often the, the factory tyre conversation comes up in terms of the boys have got factory tyres and the other boys don't and they're struggling on a part of the track and, the factory tire thing comes up and, you know, Tanny will turn around and say, hey, hey, hey hang on a sec. I only had factory tires for the last two years. Yeah. Before that, <laughs> I didn't sit on the side of the track sooking that someone else was going around the track faster than me because he had factory tires on. I just tried to figure out how I need to ride the bike better. Yeah. And then that kind of pulls everyone back in and the sooking stops and the motivation level goes up and they get back out there. Yeah, come out with a bit of a chip on the shoulder, mate, to sort of improve and show that they can still do it without that sort of resource. But that's uh, pretty cool, mate. I was going to ask, how do you manage trying to keep things fun? Obviously, it's a pretty heavy environment, pretty brutal in a lot of ways, these training programs. But do you try and sort of keep things fun and keep the guys sort of laughing throughout the day? Because I guess that's pretty important as well. Um, that's probably one of my biggest downfalls, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I've had to learn that the, the hard way because I didn't see... You know, I mean, the the fun for me is when you hold the trophy at the end of the day, or you know, the the result comes. Um, so that's something that I guess Tanny's actually, you know, um, Tanny and Caleb Byram had a big influence on, uh, not making it more fun, but but just calming the intensity down some weeks. Um, because I get overexcited about stuff and want to 
make sure that this is done and there's you know there's none of this done and there's none of that done and no one's out sleeping you know out to 11 o'clock at dinner dates and you know stuff like this on a week that we're training and then it's hooking that they're tired the next morning at the track so we you know that they help me a lot with that sort of stuff because i just want to keep keep them grinding you know yeah. um but yeah we've we've well learned what it takes and and learn about a lot about their bodies and stuff like that as well so you know they'll take heart rate data in the morning and that'll tell us you know who's ready to train and who needs to back it down for the day so you know, we try and use on those analytics as well so to make sure that um we you know someone else might be having a bit of fun and then some other times too we you know we'll pull people in um early and let them have a little bit of extra rest and then throw them out in front of the boys for the next one and let them step it up you know and um you know, it's always fun when you get to lead a few of those guys for a few laps and then, you know, I pull them back in on a short moto so they look like they won that moto, yep. you know, or that, that session of training. So, um, and then, yeah, fun times we try to do off the bike. So a lot of the fun stuff they'll do on a Saturday when I'm not there or, um, yeah, because the risk level comes along to, you know, you start throwing big whips and stuff like that. That's a pre-season thing. You know, yeah. you can increase your risk to a... I guess it's just the constant search for finding the right balance between it all, mate, because, yeah, they got to be happy as well as, you know, really instilling it into them. they got to put the work in to get to where they want to be. And I guess last one for you, mate, what are the sort of aims for the future of the program and how excited are you for the season ahead in Supercross and Motocross next year for all the guys you're training? I guess it gets to that sort of point where you want to get the guys back racing. It's been a couple of weeks since the last one now. So, yeah, just the future aims for it all and how excited are you to get back into training tomorrow, isn't it, with the Supercross? Yeah, we start Supercross prep um, tomorrow here in Queensland. Um, we've got a couple of new riders come on, which is always pretty exciting. Um, get to teach them some new things and, and they get to learn the structure, whether they like it or not. Um, but we're, we're looking at building, you know, uh, like I said, our amateur programs run by the pros now instead of me. Um, we're looking at online stuff um, to try and help more people. Um, we're also looking at a basis of, you know, um, better facilities, um, working with the tracks, better as well to provide better environments for the guys to ride in. Um, and then basically just, yeah, tr trying to build to the point where maybe take on a second trainer. Um, we're going to run a, um, a development crew, I guess. So for next year, we'll have uh, MX1, MX2 pro group. Um, and then we'll have a, a development group, which will be say MX3 and, and top junior lights kids. Um, and they'll ride at similar times or, or the same sort of venue as the pros but they may not be in the pro group um, straight up. You know, they can develop into that pro group. That way we keep the one-on-one -on -one attention, you know, there and we can develop these guys because we've found that you bring someone in that's, you know, five, six seconds a lap slower, um, we can go backwards. We can turn that person into, you know, they come to the track and they're winning junior races and they're doing all these good things and then we put them with the pro group and they're running six, seven seconds a lap slower and you know their rest periods you know they they turn up later after the like after this you know three four laps we've done sprints they turn up 30 seconds later you know there's all those sorts of things their rest times less they get worked harder and they just become disinterested you know they come to the tracking and you know get it handed to them every day you can actually de-inspire them so we're working on a program there to try and build that middle ground i guess we'll keep our pro crew running and we'll have a development feeder for that pro crew um, and then we'll have also our amateur program, which the pros will run. So, yeah, be a full house, but just yeah, a few more people on deck to help. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool, mate. There's definitely a fine line between demoralizing someone and just keeping that motivation, keeping them hungry and that desire high. So that's awesome, mate. And just lastly, anyone you'd like to thank in particular and just tell the fans where they can follow your work on social media and, and I guess just keep track of progress of the writers as well. Even though I don't think you're the biggest fan of social media, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not a great fan of social media. I'm not that good on it either. Uh, we kind of try and keep off it, but yeah, you can see some of our stuff. We're getting better at it. You see some of our stuff at Zero Zero Elite Rider Training on Instagram and Facebook. And then, yeah, we just have partnerships with Husqvarna Australia, uh, MPE Suspension, does a lot of my stuff up here in Queensland, has for the last sort of 20 years for me. Um, we got Fly Racing, Bridgestone. Then we go Rival Inc. has a massive supporter of my business up here. Um, they try and, try and stop me from looking so old school, I guess. <laughs> I try to keep all my stuff looking fresh. Um, you know, they help with quick shades and back walls and all those sorts of things rather than just having something from Bunnings and stuff like that. And then, um, yeah, we've got plenty of things going on and sort of hopefully get some more private sponsorship come in this year and, and help along so we can get to the point where we can run our own facility. So that'd be pretty cool if we can get some more private sponsorship come into the industry as a whole, you know. Oh, thanks, mate. Yeah, it's exciting times ahead. And yeah, definitely look forward to getting you back on and wish you all the success in the future with the riders. And just before we let you go, we'll thank the sponsors, obviously, in Fly Racing again, Monster Energy, Box, Parts Europe, Scott, Bell Helmets, Acherbys, AS3 Performance, Kawasaki UK, KTM UK, and of course, even Strokes for all their incredible support. As without them, none of this would be possible. All right, mate. Thanks again for joining us. And yeah, all the best for the future. No worries. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate.